Well, let's get into this week's lesson on the Holy Spirit. One of the questions that was asked um, at the very beginning um, was, what does it actually mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Um, also, sometimes it's been called the unforgivable sin. Um, and it's a, it's a fair question, because if there is an unforgivable sin, don't you think it's kind of important to know what that sin is? <laughs> um, and we've kind of we've heard the term blasphemy before, and uh, I just wonder what what do you what, how would you define blasphemy? I was looking at my concordance and it says speak evil of God. Okay. Yeah. So specifically from a biblical concept, it is really to speak evil of God. Um, and that's really what you can think about, uh, and that's contextually accurate as far as the passages that we'll be looking at. Um, speaking evil, you can blaspheme against Jesus, speaking evil of Jesus, blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, speaking evil of Him or the Father. And you know, blaspheming would be in some way or another defaming um, God, you know, regardless of whether it's the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Even if, even in Religions that would claim false gods, you know, blasphemy would be the same. Somebody speaking evil against their god, or even if someone were to speak out against Allah, you know, the uh, you know Muslims would call that blasphemy. Um, to in some way seek to defame or dethrone God um, would be a way to kind of summarize what blasphemy would be. Now, today we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about what blasphemy means, as much as we're going to look into scriptures as to see um, what Jesus and other um, writers in the scriptures, uh, how they apply blasphemy to our everyday lives, to the various people who blaspheme either the Son or the Spirit. Before we dive into this, let's pray and seek the Lord's guidance as we look into His Word. Lord, I thank you for giving us the Spirit to teach us and to guide us in all truth. And Lord, I pray and I trust that He is with us even now as the many of us are gathered here in Your name. I pray, Lord, that He would guide us and that we would seek His understanding as we look into these things, guide our conversation, guide our understanding as we see these different passages and what they might mean and how they can direct our understanding of this, of this subject. And may we know the Spirit better, may we know His work better. Um, this one who has been left with us to guide us in all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, so at the top here, we have a question. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, this, you know, this, this isn't from a catechism or anything. Um, we did catechism some time ago, but it's kind of in a similar format, question and answer. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Um, and uh, I have written down here a paragraph that says... One who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is one who is fully convinced that the Holy Spirit confirmed and empowered the incarnate Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, who sacrificed himself in order to cleanse and redeem us. But instead of submitting himself to Christ and receiving his cleansing and forgiveness, the blasphemer rejects Christ and scorns him and his work. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is, in a way, tied to speaking evil of the Son of God. Um, and let's start looking into some, to some scriptures to see uh, some implications of this. So if you could turn, and if somebody could read for us, Mark chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. 
Mark chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith whosoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, hath forever, hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Okay, so... Uh, here, Jesus is introducing for us this concept of an eternal sin. Have you ever thought about that? How in the world could there be a sin that God cannot or will not forgive? I mean, doesn't that kind of go against everything we've learned about God? A forgiving God who is patient, whose patience endures? <laughs> How in the world could there be an eternal sin for which somebody cannot receive forgiveness. I mean, it's right here in Scripture that it exists. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 12. He kind of, in Matthew, Matthew kind of records a little bit more concerning the subject uh, to the same concept. Matthew 12, 15 to 32. And I'll read this one. It's a bit more of a lengthy passage. I'll go ahead and read this one. Matthew 12, starting in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew there from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and, in, and ordered them not to make him known. <clears throat> this was to fulfill which, that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved one, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now let's stop there for a second, because here Jesus is being introduced by the prophet Isaiah as somebody who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will perform the will of God. Now we have to understand this. We've talked about this before. But we have to understand, because this is something that is crucial, that's critical to this conversation, that a lot of people don't believe. Some people don't believe that Jesus completely emptied himself when he came to earth of his power. But here, this Isaiah is prophesying that he is going to act according to the power of the Spirit. That's only necessary if Jesus, when he became a man, took on mortal flesh, emptied himself, willingly emptied himself of his own power, so that he could live his life like you and I live it. So that he could be a perfect, faithful high priest for this fleshly realm. So according to Isaiah, Jesus, his, as he carries out his ministry, he is doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, based off of that, let's continue to read in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and, healed him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. So, we, he, how, did this, how did Jesus heal this man? By whose power? His own or the Holy Spirit's? It's not in the verse, just based off of what we talked about according to this prophecy. The Spirit's. He healed the man according to the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's what we just read from Isaiah being quoted by Matthew. Not by his own power, but by the Holy Spirit's power. Verses 20, verse 23, And all... The people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. 
Now, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either, even, either in this age or in the age to come. So what Jesus is making clear here, that you can talk all you want about how Jesus isn't the Son of God, but if you're going to talk about Jesus doing work according to the devil, even though you can see the work that he's doing is good, and it is righteous, and it is healing, and it is nurturing, and it propels the truth of God, and yet you still choose to apply that to the devil? How is the devil going to promote the glory of God? That is completely against everything that the devil stands for. So what the Pharisees were doing in this situation was trying to find any excuse whatsoever to cry out against Jesus. They, in a, I truly believe that these Pharisees saw the works of Christ and were convinced that this man has come from God, but we don't want to follow him. We don't want to follow this Jesus. We want people to follow us. Even though it's completely, it, may, it would make no sense for this to be true, that he's doing this by the power of Satan, it is clear to us that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit or by the power of God that he is working these works, but we still will reject him. So what they're essentially doing is not just rejecting Christ, but rejecting the power of God in Christ. Because any man can do a wonderful work on his own authority, right? In a, in a sense. Maybe not, we can't perform miracles on our own authority, but a person can have his own motivations or his, his own agenda as far as doing good. Politicians do it all the time, right? They don't have to be doing their good deeds according to the will of God and the power of the Spirit. You know, They can be doing it just to promote their own agenda. But Jesus here is doing this by the power and the will of the Spirit. And the Pharisees, they can see these things being played out, but they still reject him. They still choose to reject Christ, even though there is no reason to continue rejecting Christ. Everything that he is doing is good. Everything that he is doing is fulfilling scriptures. Everything that he is doing is showing the people that he is the prophesied one whom they have all been waiting for for centuries. There is no reason why these Pharisees should be rejecting him. But yet they do it anyway because they don't want to submit to his authority. And he's showing them up. And he's showing them up. He is taking a... Look bad. Right. He's making them look bad. He has rebuked them. He has outwitted them, outsmarted them, made them look dumb. 
outrighteous to them. He's, mm -hmm. Right. He's outrighteous to them. His teaching was far more profound than their teaching was. He was taking away their followers. They did not want to accept this Christ, even though it was completely clear that he is the Messiah, working these works according to the power of the Spirit. So that, and they continue to reject it. And now they are saying that this, the, the power that he's getting this from is from the devil. So now they're, I mean, that's kind of the last straw in a sense. Yeah, you can, you can revile a man, but once you start making excuses for the power by which he is, making, he is healing these people and working these wonders, glorifying God as he goes, and then you start applying that to the devil... That's kind of the last straw. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. and let, This kind of wraps up the, the ideology behind this. And this is a kind of a, a tif, difficult passage to just run into on the, in the spur of the moment as you're just reading through the Scriptures and you run into this passage. It can be very confusing. And it says here in Hebrews chapter 6 through 4 and 8, well, why, why don't some, somebody else read that for us? Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. <clears throat> for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Okay. So in this pa this passage has been used many times to, you know, essentially prove that you can lose your salvation. Um, I would contend that this isn't describing somebody who has been saved as much as it would describe somebody who essentially should be saved. There's no reason for them not to be saved, but for some reason they've not fully accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. They have, perhaps this is somebody who has grown up in the church, perhaps they have been part of a God-fearing family, and they have seen the work of God with their own eyes, they've been part of it, they have mingled with other people who are spirit-filled believers who have been working for Christ according to their, the gifts, according to the Spirit. If been, perhaps they've been part of a church that is just unified in the name of Christ, promoting the truth, manifesting the Spirit because they are one in will with God and they are on point. But yet this person still, even though they have seen for sure that Jesus is the Christ because of all of the manifestations of the Spirit and the teaching from the Spirit, from people who are, you know, some of the gifts are teaching, preaching, those types of things. They have heard the truth. They have been convinced of the truth that it is true. And they have not just heard the truth. It doesn't just make sense to them, but they've also seen the people of God living out the life of Jesus Christ according to the Spirit. But yet they still come to reject Him. Even though, just like the Pharisees, there's absolutely no reason why they should reject him. Absolutely no reason. They don't have any excuse. 
because they have seen the wonder of God. They have heard the beautiful truth of the cross, perhaps even for years, decades. But then they just decide, you know what, I, I don't believe. I don't want to follow, not necessarily that I don't believe, they know the truth, but yet they choose not to follow it. Remember the Bible says even the demons believe? And they are just like a demon. They know the truth. I mean, the devil knows the truth better than any of us sitting here. He was with God from the very beginning. <laughs> he was in the presence of God Almighty. He knows the truth more than anybody. So knowing the truth is not salvation. It's submitting yourself to the truth. Giving yourself over to it for the forgiveness of your sins. Satan will not submit himself to the truth. That's why he got kicked out of heaven. He wanted to usurp God's authority over himself. And that was what he tempted Eve with, to become like God. You don't need to be under God's authority because you can be just like him. You don't need to be under his authority because you can be your own authority. So essentially the, re the rejection, the satanic rejection, comes from this, the temptation of the devil that says, yeah, you know it's true, you know the truth of the scripture, but you don't need to submit to that. You can be your own authority. And that's where we get into the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where then you start rejecting Christ for stupid reasons. Even though you know it's true, you can't reject Him deep down inside, but you reject Him because you don't want to submit yourself to His, to his glory and His authority. What did, Thomas, what did Doubting Thomas say when he saw the holes in his hands and his feet and his side? What, did, what was his response? My Lord and my God. What does my Lord mean? Yeah, he's the one in charge. That was essentially a, a good example of the point of conversion for, some, for a person. My Lord, you finally see it. My Lord and my God. You see Him as your eternal authority. Not that it comes down to all these rules and having commandments in order to gain salvation. That's not the point either. But part of that conversion process is seeing Christ for who He is, the Lord of the universe, and submitting yourself to Him. Not that you become perfect and therefore are saved, but you submit yourself to the way of God and therefore are saved. And He gives you that forgiveness as you enter into His kingdom. How can you enter into somebody's kingdom if you, if you reject the presence of a king? You cannot. So that's essentially where we start getting into the idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Is you know who the Lord is. You know who the King is. You know King Jesus. But you reject Him. You refuse to receive Him as your Savior. Even though you know. But you are led astray by the devil into that old temptation to which the devil himself even fell to to become to, to try to live your own life as your own authority. And he's, he gives an illustration in verse seven, Hebrews 6-7, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. How many of you have some cursed ground somewhere on your property? 
The same rain falls on the good ground as it does the, the other ground. Why does this ground grow weeds and this ground grow a, a fruitful harvest? <laughs> it's the same rain. Why is there a difference? Well, we can get into a whole other subject with that. But essentially that's what's happening here. The same truth that you're accepting, the other person, this other person is also convinced of, but they reject it. Why do you accept it and why do they reject it? I can't tell you all the answers to that. <laughs> but the point is, they've received the rain. They've received the truth. They know it's true, but they reject it anyway. Their heart does not bear fruit for, of repentance. Their heart brings thorns instead and weeds of rejection. Charles Templeton, are you aware of Charles Templeton's story? No, I don't think so. He was a friend of Billy Graham's and they went to university together. Mm -hmm. They traveled the world over and was preaching. Mm -hmm. And they thought Templeton would be the greater of the two. Yeah. But yeah, later on he wrote Farewell to God. Yeah. He became a, an atheist. Well, he's not an atheist. Proclaimed I, I atheist. He <laughs> yeah. I mean, he knows the truth, but yeah. he, he just rejected it. Right. He's a classic example of yeah. the way you're wording that. Yeah, exactly. Bill, you have Billy Graham on one side, and then this Templeton fellow on the other side. Ended up in Canada, mm -hmm. had Alzheimer's, and couldn't, <clears throat> yeah. couldn't even receive the truth in his older right. years. Right, right. Yeah. So I hope that's helpful as far as understanding what it is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's basically to know that the Holy Spirit is true, and He empowered and... Um, was the power of Christ, who walked, who by whom Christ lived and and worked and fulfilled the will of God in the in this life, um, and it is to know full with full assurance what the truth is, but to continually reject it and to never submit to it. Now we have to ask, what do we do with blasphemers? For instance, in Leviticus chapter twenty-four, do we take advice from the law? <laughs> If somebody wants to read Leviticus 24, 10 to 16 for us. Who would like to read that? Leviticus 24, 10 to 16. Okay, so is that how we deal with modern-day blasphemers? Take them out, put your hands on them, and, and hit them over the head with stones? Is that what we should do? That's in the law, right? <laughs> but I, I, wanna, I want you to notice something in this passage. He's talking to either the native or the sojourner, the person who is from within the church or without the church. 
In Hebrews that we just read, that's somebody who's probably a blasphemer who has grown up within the church, within a body of Christ, without actually being part of it. Not really. They probably claimed the same things for a while. Maybe they put some money in the offering plate. Maybe they went down the aisle a few times. They grew up that way. They sang the native and the sojourner, whoever blasphemes. A blasphemer can come from anywhere. So should we stone these people? That's what the Bible says to do with a blasphemer in, the, in Leviticus. Yeah. We're supposed to separate and have nothing to do with it. Okay. So, and that's one thing we'll get to. Um, and one thing that we need to understand between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the fulfillment of the law in Christ, um, which turns a lot of this teaching in the Old Testament into um, the revealing of mysteries in the New Testament that are fulfilled in Christ. Now, is a, is a blasphemer truly going to be put to death at some point. Yes. Well, one, their soul is already dead. But we're, one day, what, Rich? Yeah. Eternally so, they will be cast out. You know? And the way, and what I want to talk to you guys about is, what are, how are we supposed to today respond to blasphemers. And I want to start from the very beginning. Hebrews chapter 11, or Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm, I'll read this too because it's a very long, lengthy passage. Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the, test, to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, what, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see then that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Um, so I want you to see from the very beginning what is our responsibility with this conversation about dealing with blasphemers. Did you kind of pick up something as far as, go, go back to the very beginning as far as our responsibility to each other? We're supposed to be exhorting each other so that people don't blaspheme to begin with. And rebuke. And rebuke. Rebuke when you see somebody going astray. When you, perhaps you see somebody starting to give themselves to various degrees of false teaching. You warn them so that they don't go further into false teaching and ultimately become a blasphemer. Because he says... Um, 
Let's see here. In verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So in a way, our salvation is not really fully known until we have finished our course. We have run our race. We have endured to the end. Our faith is in Christ the whole way through. We're not putting our faith in our works, but as far as you and I, the proof is in the end, not the beginning. Is so-and-so, are you going to see so-and-so in heaven? Well, I would say according to their current state of their faith, I'd say yes. But I suppose we have to wait till the end to see if they hold firm their confidence to the end or if they fall away and become a blasphemer. But how do, we, how do we prevent each other from becoming blasphemers? How do we help each other stay firm in their faith until the end? By encouraging each other, by edifying one another, by speaking truth into each other, by sharing the word with each other. How many times do you get together with your brothers and sisters and encourage each other in Christ? We can encourage each other with brownies and cookies until the cows come home. <laughs> but is that going to keep somebody firm in the faith? It can be a help. How often do we encourage each other in the faith by the words of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit within you according to the gifts you've been given? Because remember the Holy Spirit gives us gifts accordingly as He will for the good of the body so that the whole body may be edified. We're supposed to be using our gifts to edify each other, to, incur, to be speaking truth into each other, to lift each other up so that we don't fall away. That's where we start. Blasphemers will more, more, are more likely to appear in a church where all the people ever do with each other is talk about the weather and things that don't really come from the scriptures. That's where blasphemers come from. Go ahead. Yeah. But I have always wondered about the parable of the soil. Mm-hmm. If that's referring to somebody who accepted Christ and then all the different situations right. Right. that can happen. Mm-hmm. But it almost like the Nazarene people I get the impression that they feel it's just what you said, it's how they run the race to the end, whether they really make it to heaven or not. Mm -hmm. Then it sounds like it's our works. Yeah. So it's kind of confusing. Right, it is confusing. And this is one of the things that it's really a glory to keep studying these things, because these things help us op open up our mind to what salvation is. Salvation, we like to think of salvation as this static thing that's just trapped in space and time. The salvation's in the hand of God as he holds his own. The Lord knows who's our... The Bible does say the Lord knows who are his and those he will not let fall away. Kirk? No, I run oh. off. Okay, All okay. the Father gives to me okay. shall come to me. And right. if it comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Right. So you notice, and you notice the phrase, shall come to me. Coming is a journey. And we will make it there if we are truly his. But if we are not truly his, we can, we can try to keep up with the other people who are his, but eventually we will fall away and become castaways. Um, you know, what is, I mean, you, you kind of think of the idea of a, uh, a stowaway on a, on a boat. <laughs> 
you know, they're going the same direction as everybody else. You know, they're on the same boat that everybody else is on, but they don't belong there. They didn't enter the narrow gate. They tried to steal their way into the in, onto the journey, but eventually they'll be cast overboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. So it's not by works that we are saved, but the Bible does say, whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. So that is part of our salvation journey, is that you can know that a person is at least on his, on, is following Christ by the fruit. You shall know them by their fruit. I mean, this concept shows up all throughout Scripture. Very rarely in Scripture do you find evidence that... Well, I mean, I believe that there is a point where you are reconciled to God, where you are redeemed, you are brought into the family of God. I believe that there is a point of that. I mean, that's what baptism is for, to show something that happened because of your faith. Right. But your whole life long is the proof of that faith. And if that proof falls short and fails, then it reveals that all of this was just stowaway material, where you were just kind of, you were on the boat, but you didn't really belong there. Um, Everybody else is on there legitimately, but you, the stowaway, are illegitimate. And you're not going to be welcome at the destination. You're going to be thrown into prison. The authorities will be called. You're a stowaway. You didn't enter by the, the proper way through the blood of Christ. You may have been going the same direction that everybody else was going, but you don't belong here because you didn't come by faith in Jesus Christ. You, just, you came on the coattails of everybody else who was in church or your family or whatever, but you yourself never had a legitimate faith. And as you read through scriptures and you see the teachings of Christ, all of this really comes from the teachings of Christ as you look at what Christ's sermons, that he who abides in me bears much fruit. So salvation is a, I believe that it's both, it can both be understood as something that happens in your life, but it's also something that's happening in your life. It's very confusing, it's like a trinity. (laughs) How can something happen but also be happening? (laughs) You know? It's confusing, and that's one of the things that I love about salvation, is it's not as simple as we like to make it out to be, but it is simple enough to, for a child to accept it. It's a scary thought, because it seems like the majority of Christians have no interest mm-hmm. in the things of God, if that makes any sense. Right. You're right. To truly be in His Word, and I mean, I think of myself, there's times when I have enough flow. Yeah. There's times when I'm warmer and I have a closer relationship with the Lord, and there's times when I'm kind of drifting, yeah. not as close as I was. Mm-hmm. And it's not the Lord, it's me. Yeah. And that's why we can also take confidence. You know, we can be. I've been where you're at. I've doubted my salvation many different times. <laughs> Sometimes I just feel like a, a royal screw up. Um, but really, I do take confidence in the fact that the Lord knows who are His, and He will bring us through. We will have our our upsets, you know. But scripturally speaking, it's what happens all the way up to the end. You know, somebody, you know, some of us may have children that have looks like they've all fallen away, but maybe they'll come back. There's still time. There's still time up to death, and that's where I want to end with today. Is you know, okay, let's say we start off with, let's try to make sure that nobody becomes a blasphemer, that we all endure to the end. 
by edifying, by constantly preaching the gospel to each other, um, and uplifting ourselves. But now, if there is a blasphemer, what happens then? First Timothy 1.12, and this is what we'll end with. If somebody could read 1.12 through 20. One, one, twelve through twenty. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Down to 20, is that right? Yes. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hermenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be, ta- to be taught and to bless. Okay. So this is kind of what I want to end with, and I want to. Uh, piggy tail on the le- this past conversation we've been having, bringing the Holy Spirit back into this. We've talked about how Holy Spirit is the seal, okay, of our of our faith, and that the, whom the Lord seals, He will bring home. So if the Holy Spirit is within you, He's been given to you, and He dwells in you, you will not be lost because the Holy Spirit will see to it that you keep going, okay. And that's the difference between the person who is truly of the faith and the person who is not of the faith. If you've been given the Holy Spirit, and that is a gift that the Lord will not take away from you. There are some who are doing the Christianese thing according to their own power and not according to the power of the Holy Spirit. There were some people in Jesus' day who were trying to do the things that Jesus did, but they were doing it by their own power, so they really got brought to nothing. But Jesus, because he was working according to the power of the Holy Spirit, people saw the Lord God magnified in a great way through him. And he, you know, beyond that, he was able to save all humanity, erase Adam's sin, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the difference is the Holy Spirit between the believer and the non-believer. Even the believer and the non-believer who look the same because they go to the same church, they sit in the same pews, they give the same money, listen to the same sermons. But one has the Spirit and one doesn't have the Spirit. You know, just like the, the parable, you know, if you build your house on the rock, you're a wise man. If you build your house on the sand, you're a foolish man. They're the same house, same trimmings, same woodwork. It's just what's underneath it. <laughs> that's what all. That's what matters. Um, but here in this passage, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, Paul himself refers to himself as a blasphemer. So how is it that he's not eternally damned? Yeah. He was right. Right. He said he was shown mercy because of his. He was doing it out of ignorance. He didn't actually know the truth. He didn't believe it. 
And that's really the big difference between the eternal sin and the, and the temporal sin, I guess you could call it. Is that temporal, the temporal sin of blasphemy is, yeah, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's why I reject him, because I don't believe it. I don't see it. I don't understand how he could be him. But the person who knows, they believe that the Spirit used, was, was in him. And just like Jesus says, and if I do these works by the power of the Spirit, then you know the kingdom of God has come to you. Why? Because the difference is because you are convinced that the Spirit is actually, is actually there from God, bringing the kingdom in. And if you refuse to enter into that kingdom, even though you're fully convinced of it, that's the eternal blasphemy that we're talking about. That's something that, it's not that God will not forgive you, it's that you will not seek forgiveness. And that's, that's, the big, that's the big difference. It's, there's nothing wrong with God and His patience and His love and His mercy. Because none of us deserve it, right? That's why it's mercy. The big difference is the person who knows the truth and still rejects it is the person who will not accept it. It's not that God doesn't love them or want them. It's that they don't want Him and they will not want Him. They've already shown it because they are fully convinced of the truth but they refuse to accept it. There's nothing that you can say to them that will make them more convinced of the truth because they already, they already are convinced that it's true. But they willingly and purposefully reject it. Nothing wrong with God's love. Nothing wrong with God's mercy. His compassion isn't broken. God would still accept them if they came and asked for repentance. But they will not come for, and repent. That's why it's an eternal sin, because they will not come and repent. And here he says at the end of this passage that we read, um, oops, I have to turn the page back. He talks about these two people called Hymenius and Alexander, and he says, um, I have handed these people over to Satan so they may learn not to blaspheme. Hey, you want to play Satan's game? Then go be on Satan's team and see how you like it. You want to say the same things that the devil is saying about Jesus Christ? Okay, go play up on his team according to his rules. Get the fruit of his kingdom and see how you like it and see if you, know, if you still don't want Jesus. So this is, in a sense, church discipline. If there is somebody who is blaspheming, you separate them. You don't consider them to be a brother. So that maybe there is hope still that they are doing this out of ignorance that they might see, wait, I don't like being separated from the body of Christ. So that maybe, there's, maybe they would be convinced to come and repent of their sin and stop blaspheming Christ, stop speaking out against Christ, stop defaming Christ, and come to actually receive Christ. So the point is, you and I cannot really tell if somebody is blaspheming out of ignorance, out of knowledge. That's not for us to be able to determine. And don't go out and try to think, well, my family member, they talk badly about Christ all the time. They must have considered, committed the eternal sin. We can't say that because we don't really know their hearts. We don't really know what they've seen, what they know, what they don't know. We don't really know. Our job is, if there's a blasphemer, well, we need to do, take steps to try to win them to Christ. That's what we need. We need to treat them like an unbeliever who needs the gospel. We don't just give up on them because, well, eternal sin, worthless to talk to them. You know, that's not how we approach blasphemers. We approach a blasphemer with the hopes that it's out of ignorance and that there's still hope for them. And we treat them like a person with hope in Jesus Christ. If they never come to Christ, 
Well, again, if they endure in their disbelief till the end, we know the outcome of that. But as far as you and I are concerned, we don't give up on somebody because we think they've committed the eternal sin. We keep trying to help them see the truth. One of, the, I mean, he talks about church discipline. You know, we, we keep trying to tell them the gospel. We don't accept them as a brother because if we keep treating them like a brother, then they're never really going to see their need. We treat them like an outsider, but what do we do with outsiders? We try to make them insiders. <laughs> so that's how we approach blasphemers. Try to make them an insider. Do whatever it takes to love them, show the compassion of Christ to them, and hopefully they will become a believer. Any questions before we move on to prayer? Let's. Yeah.